This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. We also host an annual conference, a five-day experience of transformation, held in August each year in the beautiful Rocky Mountains. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today I speak with Dr. Henry Grayson. Henry Grayson is a leading psychologist who has spent decades exploring the connections between psychology, physics, and the spiritual traditions of the world. After receiving his PhD in psychology from Boston University, he founded and served as chairman emeritus at the National Institute for the Psychotherapies in New York. He advises professional associations in fields ranging from marital therapy to transpersonal psychology and has worked as resident psychologist on a weekly television series and currently hosts the weekly radio show Mindful Living on the Progressive Radio Network. With Sounds True, Henry Grayson has released The New Physics of Love, The Power of Mind and Spirit in Relationships, a nine-hour audio training course. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Henry and I spoke about the emerging field of energy psychology and the possibility of quote-unquote deleting undesirable and obsolete core beliefs in the twinkling of an eye. We also spoke about the role that our thoughts play in our relationships, especially when we understand the non-local nature of the universe. Here's my very intriguing conversation with Henry Grayson. Henry, what can quantum physics teach us about love and relationships? What are the key ideas from quantum physics that we can apply to our love life? Boy, what a wonderful question, Tammy. Uh, Quantum physics gives us a whole new world view from the one that we mostly live in. Uh, The worldview that we live in from the world of Isaac Newton And that physics is much more linear, it's dualistic, it's cause and effect, it's all really quite visible right here in front of us. But it's a very mechanistic world. It's one where we're locked in because the past has occurred, then something now is going to happen as a result and it's locked in for the future and you can predict the future based on it. In the quantum worldview, there is infinite potentiality and consciousness plays a very, very powerful role in that. So that when we think about this in in terms of relationships, we can take one simple thing, for example, that if we had, as as children, painful experiences uh, in our developmental years, and we know those kind of get etched into our personalities, all the personality theories talk about our personalities being formed by the age of four or five or six. But they didn't really talk about and understand how that happened. Now from the world of neuropsychology and quantum physics, we have a whole other understanding. We know that, first of all, when those brain waves are so slow in those first years of life, theta, delta brain waves for a couple of years, then theta brain waves, it's like we're in a deep hypnotic trance. 
and then the alpha brain waves through grammar school till we hit puberty, like we're in a mild hypnotic trance. You know, if you hypnotize somebody that uh, uh, to get rid of a desire for cigarettes, you want to plant a suggestion. And so you get them to the slower brain waves so you can plant the suggestion that tobacco smoke will taste horrible to them or something. Well, we've got the same thing as little children, all this stuff programmed in. And according to the old theory, once that's locked in, it's pretty difficult to change. You're pretty much doomed to keep repeating the past and the present. And most of our therapy systems have not really dealt with that quite adequately. They've assumed that uh, talking about it would make the changes. And sometimes it does to a certain degree, but it does not deal with or release, for the most part, those early infantile traumas or those childhood traumas or even intrauterine traumas. And uh, first year of life where we have more new experiences than any other year in our lives. And at that level, those experiences are programmed into our personalities. Then they, they get locked into belief systems about ourselves, and then we play them out in our relationships. And so what happens in that early bonding or lack of it? The traumas are the lack of it. The nurturance are the lack of it. The dependability and consistency are the lack of it. The judgments and criticisms are the models from parents interacting lovingly and productively are the models of them acting and fighting uh, physically or verbally or being critical or rejecting. All of that gets taken in very early and determines a lot of what happens in our relationships. Uh, For example... Most of us had the experience of sitting in a restaurant with a mate or a good friend even sometimes, and we're having a perfectly good conversation. And then somebody says something that's very innocuous, and the other person just loses it and goes off the wall. Most of us have had that kind of experience, either in ourselves or another person. That means that something got activated from these very, very early years. Normally we've seen that, we've hoped that talking about it would change it, but often it doesn't. Now we know we have to go back and actually uh, delete that encoding of information, much like deleting information in a computer. But we have to delete that information from the hypothalamus and the limbic system of the brain. So we don't keep repeating that and reacting to the little buttons that get pushed here and there, which bring enormous responses. So in the quantum worldview, nothing is really locked in. Nothing is etched in stone, so to speak. And the quantum worldview is similar to the spiritual worldview, where there is that infinite potentiality and where consciousness is the part that rules. We know at the quantum level, for example, matter and energy are virtually indistinguishable. Uh, And at the quantum level, that's where, uh, I guess, a quantum is 10,000 to 10, 20, 30 million times smaller than the smallest atom, which is quite small. And we know that the vibrational letter level of the quanta, uh, it slows down, it becomes what we call matter, which in physics is just a tendency to exist. And uh, if it doesn't slow down, it remains as energy. So if that's happening, they say there's consciousness, the physicists say, that determines whether or not that becomes matter or it remains as energy. We actually also know, too, that consciousness affects every cell in the body which affects our moods, our attitudes, which, of course, affect our relationships. And we know that the physical environment affects every cell, but we also know that the other environment of consciousness and energy affects it anywhere between 50 to 100 times more powerfully. That's more getting out of the old linear worldview into a world where our consciousness reigns. And our consciousness and energy that's connected with it can have enormous effects. So 
So we can use consciousness and energy to go back and delete those old programs, to delete that information that has to do with the past traumas. We can delete the negative belief systems that grew out of that. We can actually literally install new software, so to speak, new belief systems, that, and open up new neural pathways to support that, all of which can have an enormous effect on a change in relationships. It's really quite remarkable to me when I see what things I would, I would call miraculous some years ago, but now can be done in a more commonplace way. And what an effect that has in relationships. So all of this comes, as I would say, from a new world view, that the quantum world, which is similar to the spiritual world, has a different possibility for us, where we are not locked into this old determinism and the powerlessness that seems to go along with it. Now, Henry, you've said so many things in response to this first question of mine. I'm going to have to slow you down a little bit because there's a couple of things that you've said that are very intriguing to me. I don't think I I've get carried away. No, on no, it. it's wonderful, but I don't think I've ever heard anybody say that in our early years of life, there are different brainwave patterns that the theta and delta brainwave patterns are more present, and that's why we can be more easily imprinted in our early years. Mm -hmm. Can you unpack that a little bit? I've never heard that before. Well, it's the first two years of life we are in delta brainwaves. And those are the very slowest ones. It's like just barely above being asleep. And then by the third year, we'll go into theta brainwaves, which is a little bit faster and a little bit more active. And we can begin to assimilate more from the outside world. And then we get into grammar school, it shifts into alpha brainwaves which is what would be the equivalent of a light hypnotic trance. And then only when we hit puberty do our brainwaves change into uh, beta brainwaves. And so those earlier years are, this helps us understand why those earlier years are so important, because we're just kind of taking in whatever is there. Now that's good news and bad news, because the good news part is that's the way we learn to walk, the way we learn to talk, the way we learn to do a whole variety of things. We downloaded that. We don't have to think about it. Uh, it's like if you're uh, driving a car, most of the time that's unconscious and you don't think about it. And that's good. But if you were a 16-year-old driving a car for the first time and somebody pulls out in front of you, uh, tries to has to think it through so much that there's no automatic response that would save their necks and they're likely to have an accident. So that's the positive side. We incorporate a lot of things that are positive. But the bad news is we also incorporate all those negative things that are happening around us. And then in addition to that, we know in our child development, it's not just nature and nurture that forms our personalities now. There's a third component that's equally important. And that's how each of us as a child interprets everything in our environment, what our parents say or do or don't do. And our interpretation plays in a critical role too. And that interpretation helps us form a belief system. And so that's why it's so important that we have a way to get back to those, those traumas, those painful experiences, those negative downloads, we might even say. And we can use consciousness and work with subtle energies with intentionality to clear that out. And we can clear out those negative programmings of those beliefs that get repeated and replayed and confirmed over and over again. So that's the value of our understanding this, is that it takes us out of this old deterministic view where we're kind of locked into the past. And an infant, a one-year-old, let's say, don't they have access to beta brainwave states, alpha brainwave states? 
not not nearly as much. It's very minimal. Well, you know, of course, the input, you know, a lot of the time is spent sleeping anyway. And as you get a little bit older, they sleep less. And so that's a part of what keeps them there. But, uh, uh, no, it's more predominant that they are those slower brain waves. The idea of neuroplasticity is something that has come into the collective understanding, I think, now. But you're drawing a very interesting parallel here, that if we understand quantum physics, then, of course, neuroplasticity has to be the fact. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think I've ever really heard that stated so clearly either, and I wonder if you can just draw that connection for us. Well, we, from a spiritual or a quantum worldview, there's not much that exists as a physical universe. Uh, if you think, for example, that uh, uh, you crush an atom, you know, when we were in school, we were taught, for example, that uh, you look at an atom and break it down, inside there's an electron, proton, and neutron. And we thought of that as matter, some kind of matter. Now, as they crush the atom, they find there's nothing there but little sparks of energy. Well, if everything that exists is comprised of atoms, that means there's not much here that's actually tangible. So my body, therefore, is 99.999% empty space, primarily. As physicists would put it, things don't really exist. Molecules don't exist. There's just a tendency to exist. And they almost pop into existence, then they disappear, another molecule almost pops into existence. When that occurs, uh, that's where consciousness intervenes again. That's why we can direct our bodies about what to do to change our programming from sickness to health. Um, But on the other hand, uh, in in terms of our brain plasticity we're talking about, that means that what we thought was fixed before in the brain, the material matter of our brain, is not fixed matter. It's not stone, as we've talked about. But even stone is not fixed matter anymore because nothing in the physical universe is fixed. It is always in constant change, and it's highly affected by consciousness or our collective consciousness. Like physicist John Wheeler, for example, notable physicist when he was at Princeton, said, could it be we bring the whole universe into existence through our consciousness? Quite an amazing statement to make, isn't it? It is. Could you help me understand that? Well, what they're saying is is that whatever it is that's called consciousness, and the physicists are having one great time trying to defi- define what they mean by it. And I think the spiritual teachers have had trouble defining it, too. Whether you call it the unified field, whether you call it higher consciousness, whether you call it divine nature that we are part of, whether we call it the energy field of the universe, I don't know what name we can use because I think the names all don't quite say it. Just like in the Jewish tradition, you can't really name God because you're limiting it. And so I think the same thing applies here, that any words we use sort of limit this phenomenon, this field of energy and intelligence that we have given different names to. And so uh, if that's really what's permeating the universe, and we are part of that, and whatever it is we're calling consciousness has the power to affect it, then that means we are not limited. We're not boxed in. Uh, The brain is not locked because it, it is matter, but there's nothing there that in that matter either. That's just energy and information. It's just a tendency to exist. So if we think of it that way, then obviously the brain does have a lot of plasticity. But it's not just the brain. It's everything in our bodies and everything in our lives and everything in our relationships too. Mm-hmm. And now we'll get to this point you were making that sometimes these 
difficult core beliefs that we have formed in early childhood, that it's possible to, quote unquote, delete them. This is what you're saying. And so, yes, it makes sense. Everything's changing. And yet most of us have quite a bit of difficulty with core beliefs that seem to stay around and stay around, stay around, despite how much money we spend on therapy, despite how much meditation practice we do. So what's the secret here, Henry? Well, I found that there's uh, uh, using some methods that uh, maybe are a little strange or a little different. Bring them on. Pardon? Bring them on. Yeah. But anyway, using one of those, I think it helps us give a very heightened focus of conscious intent more than something that's familiar or old, repetitive from the past. We know rituals, for example, are very important in almost every tradition, whether it's an educational ritual, whether it's a political ritual or a religious ritual or a business ritual. If you think about it, they're all for the purpose of giving more focus of consciousness, right? And so if a ritual does that, why not have one that's going to bring a more intense focus? And I find... One that's uh, quite helpful is uh, meridian point stimulation on the body. Because then you have, drawing from the Chinese acupuncture tradition, you don't use needles, but you know that in those acupuncture meridians, those energy uh, meridians that run through the body, each one is attached to different organs. And each one of those organs is associated with certain emotions. There's a set of negative emotions, and if those are stimulated in that meridian, then naturally those go away and the positive ones replace it. That's part of the whole system of acupuncture. Now, but they don't use consciousness much in traditional acupuncture practice. That's used more in the Qigong work, where you have consciousness to focus the energy. But in acupuncture, they just use the needles, twirl them around, or stimulate them electronically, but don't use the consciousness. So they have a certain amount of value, but I don't think nearly the amount that they have when you add consciousness to it. So if you take... um, uh, A certain issue like, say, I believe I don't deserve to have a happy relationship, or I believe I'm not worthy, or I believe I'll always be rejected, or I believe nobody will love me, or I'm not lovable, or something like that. If that belief stays in place, it's going to work like software in our computer. It'll only keep printing out exactly what's in that software. And uh, it'll just keep replaying itself. And further, for some strange reason, I think it's because of what I call the ego mind that likes to repeat the past and keep the pains alive. But it will cause us to even seek out confirmation of that old belief system. So we're going to get confirmation of it come hell or high water. We're going to find some way to prove that my belief is right, that it's the truth. So we'll pick people in our lives to be in our relationships that will confirm the belief that I'm not lovable or I'll be rejected or I'll be abandoned or I'll be abused or something like that. Uh, Then if that doesn't work, we'll act in such a way and send out the energy in our uh, energy field to that person to get them to behave in such a way uh, that will confirm that. And if that doesn't work, we have a third backup means that we can always use, and we human beings are masters of it, We'll see it as happening even if it's not. We'll project that onto the other person. And studies now show that that's one thing we human beings are just doing all the time. We're projecting our meaning and interpretation onto everything and everyone. In fact, even so much of what we see is only because we have the neural pathways or the receptors to even see that. There may be whole universes existing around us in the same field that don't exist, but we just don't have the the receptors to make it an image in our sensory system. 
So if we think of all that, then we realize what we need to do is to break into that system. And if, I like the model of thinking of the brain as a, uh, because that was a model for the computer anyway. So we look at the computer and we can see a little bit the way about the way the brain works, though it's far more complex. I mean, it, uh, when your brain or my brain processes more information than the largest mainframe on Earth. But if we think of it the same way, like our computer, we, it doesn't take time to delete an old program. It just means we have to consciously type in a few commands. We press a delete button, and it's gone. So if we can recognize that all these things in our brain are just encoding some information too, but they're not in, locked into something that's fixed, they're locked into this changing energy system, that energy consciousness field that we are part of and they're locked into that so if we are sending doing the equivalent of a wireless web search instructing our minds to go to the place that information is encoded and doing one of these procedures touching or tapping on these acupressure points within statements of intention about what we're releasing i find i'm so amazed at how it works and for many people works in just a very few minutes to do that uh, occasionally, I found it works even faster than that for some person. There's like one woman I was with just a couple of days ago, and we were about to do one of these processes that would take five to seven minutes to do. I had a feeling as we were setting it up and talking about it, I could see in her face and her eyes some shift in energy that happened. I like to use muscle testing from applied kinesiology to ascertain whether my hunches are accurate or not or where a trauma disturbance comes from or not because if you extend the arm and ask a person to resist pushing it down and if inner wisdom knows a statement to be true the arm becomes very strong if they know it to be false it goes weak that way you can ascertain even if there was a trauma in the uterus or there's a trauma in the first year of life that's not really conscious and the muscle testing will reveal whether it's there or not well we can do that with any place along the way so we can take one of these uh, negative beliefs or a trauma that a person has had, any kind of painful experience, go through this process, having them touch on some acupressure points, make the statement of what emotion they're releasing that's connected with that meridian. I'll find sometimes they'll go along, they'll touch one on the eyebrow, and so I release all fear related to this problem and take a deep breath or two, which kind of helps keep one down into an alpha state for associative connections. Then come to the outside edge of the eye and hold their fingers there and say, I release all anger, resentment, and rage related to this belief or this trauma or this download or whatever it is we're releasing. And uh, and to breathe. Now, as one goes along, I won't go through all these different emotions over each place now, but as one goes along, often when they touch that spot, they may suddenly feel motions that they did not know they had connected with that event or that belief. Like when they touch the first place, I release all fear, and they're releasing it, and they're very comfortable. They touch the one on the outside of the eye, and I release all anger, resentment, and rage. Suddenly they're aware of anger they did not know was there. They're connecting with what was there from that original trauma, that original belief. Or it might take place, or shame, or guilt, or fear, or worry at some other acupressure point. But as they do that and move through those places and go around toward the end, and I have them place the hand on the chest for the healing part at the end, and to breathe love right into the heart, and exhale fear down to the solar plexus, bringing the highest force of energy to bear on whatever it is they've been carrying. Then we do uh, ask them to do one of several things. Ask them what they're feeling now. And they'll often report right then, 
boy, I feel so much more calm when I focus on this. When I focus on that scene or that memory or that event or the scenes that represent that belief, I just don't have the same emotional charge on it. And then you will keep processing it until the muscle testing says they brought it down, say, for the strength of a 10 or a 10-point scale. We make sure that we get it all the way down to a zero. And then a person you know, is aware at the same time, I just don't feel the same thing. I just feel so, so much peace now when I think about it, and I didn't feel it before. And so what people are doing now, I find, then they come back the next week and they'll report to me that, gee, I just didn't have the same charge and reaction to this person in that situation where it was reactivating that old belief or playing out the old trauma. I was just saying that one thing that occurs to me is there's a phrase from the Christian Bible in the book of Revelation that I like. I think it's often been misconstrued by a lot of the conservative Christians who call it John's vision on the Isle of Patmos in that book is some kind of eschaton that's going to happen after we die or how the world comes to an end. But I think it's a vision, actually, of how the battle that takes place, the battle of Armageddon is one that takes place inside all of us all the time between the ego and higher consciousness. But anyway, what he says, the phrase I like, is, you shall all be transformed in the twinkling of an eye. And what that says to me is that's our potentiality, and the world of quantum physics tells us that that is also possible. Now, I've occasionally been able to do something like that, even with a physical symptom myself in the twinkling of an eye, but most of the time it's taken a little bit more of a process. I think what we're gradually coming to as we're changing our worldview is that much more is there that we can do more quickly and deeper in a much shorter time in the twinkling of an eye than we ever believe possible. And the more we believe that, the more it will be so. Well, I want to understand for a moment what you think is happening during this twinkling of an eye moment. I mean, I was with you in terms of somebody's tapping on their meridians. They're bringing an intent to shift some type of core belief. And then in a twinkling of an eye, it's done. What, what happened I think it's the same thing that happens when you press a delete button on a program in your computer. Do you think about, do we know what happens there? How do we explain it? We know it's just encoding information. And somehow we have a way to instruct that information to be stricken from it and to not be there and affect our computers anymore. And like if our computer is overloaded with too many programs and old programs and distorted programs, it gums up our computer. I think the same thing happens for us in our personalities and our bodies. If we can delete this old programming that's no longer effective, that's no longer necessary, maybe it never was really necessary, but it's just part of the pollution, we might say, that we took in emotionally and physically. If we can instruct our minds, in a sense it's like doing the equivalent of a wireless web search. We instruct our computer or our iPad, or whatever it is, or iPods, to go to some place where there's information, and before you know it, it appears right there on our screen. We can put it on the screen, or we can keep it, or we can delete it. And this worldview, and the quantum worldview, and this digital worldview, there's, all, there's a whole realm of possibility that we've not seen before. Can you tell me, Henry, how this has worked in your own life? Oh, there's so many ways. My goodness. <laughs> Where would I even start? Uh, I've seen it work in my life with physical symptoms. I've seen it work in my life with uh, old beliefs I've carried. Um, Give me one example that I might think is dramatic. Um, 
One example was when I was a child, about eight years of age, uh, we lived in a house in Florida where they had uh, cattle gaps. People who these days wouldn't know what they are, but it's a pit that has railroad ties over it that you can drive your car over it, but it keeps cattle from coming along and getting into your yard. They won't walk across that because there's space in between. And there's an opening in our cattle gap in the middle where this kid is fun to crawl down in there and place to hide. But one of my cousins was visiting who was six years older, so it's considerably bigger than, than me. And uh, we were playing hide-and-seek, and I was down there in, the, went in that pit. He comes up over me, finds me, but then he won't let me out of that pit. And he starts throwing sand and gravel in on my head. And I'm just really petrified. I can't get out. He won't let me out. I'm screaming and crying. Finally, the adults hear him and call me, call him off. After that time, I was quite claustrophobic. Every time I would get in a tight space, I would really have to work to not be panicked. And when I came to New York, if I would get in the subway and it would be very crowded and the train would get stuck for a little while in between sessions, I'd have to close my eyes and breathe deeply and picture myself on a mountaintop or something in order not to panic. Or in college, if I would get into a car and, you know, how a whole bunch of kids will pile into a back seat and people on top of each other, if I was back there, I'd have to scream and get them to let me out of the car because I would go into panic. I did one of these processes on myself after I learned them and took me about four to five minutes to do it. I've not experienced that panic ever since. Crowded seats in airplanes, uh, crowded subways, uh, boxed in someplace else, just does not occur. It does not push that old button of the old trauma. And tell me exactly in this four or five minutes what the process is that you went through. Well, what I went through was uh, placing my fingers on the forehead to focus because, you know, through the centuries people have often done that. Even Rodin recognized that in his uh, portrayal in the sculpture, The Thinker. Uh, we've learned that we stimulate the frontal lobes of the brain through subtle energies, and it helps us focus. So I have people focus there with some deep breaths. I focused on my trauma, memories of that scene, how I felt, where I felt that in my body. And then I brought my fingers to the eyebrow, and I said, I release all fear related to this trauma. And I took a deep breath. And then I brought my fingers to the outside edge of the eye, and I release all anger, resentment, and rage related to this trauma. And I took a deep breath, or two or three. Then under the eye, and I said, I release all anxiety related to these traumas, this trauma. And I took a deep breath or two to reflect on it. Did the same thing under my nose. All these are acupressure points. I said, I release all embarrassment related to this trauma. And the deep breath again, under the bottom lip. And I release all shame and guilt related to this trauma. And a deep breath. My fingers under the arm. And I release all worry and excessive concern related to this trauma. And then deep breathing again. Fingers of both hands to the bottom of the rib cage in front. And I release all hurt and sadness related to this trauma. And a deep breath. Then bring my hand up over the heart and take six or eight or ten slow deep breaths, breathing in love and exhaling fear. And then just touching the collarbone on one side or the other and taking a couple of deep breaths. This is the collarbone where it has to do with fear again. And, and I would assess afterward what came up, how much disturbance remained for me on a scale of zero to ten, whereas it had been a ten when I started. And after doing one round, it came down, I think, to about a six. 
I repeated it again. It came down to about a three. And I repeated it a third time. It came down to a zero. And so with that, afterward, it was just gone. Now, another way something I've had has happened quickly. Once some years ago, when my younger son was about eight, nine years of age, we lived in a place that had a stream that ran through the property here in Connecticut. And I wanted to build a little Japanese-type bridge over that stream. And I thought it would be a fun thing to do with him. He was big enough to hammer nails, and we could have a fun project together. We were building that little bridge, and it came time to we put the flooring in, and it had the posts up on the side, and it was time to put the upper railing in. And I soaked the two-by-fours for the railing so they would bend without breaking, and I was trying to put in strong, deep screws in there to hold the railing down so that they would lock into that bent position like you have in the Japanese bridges. I looked down, my, my screw was not going in with a power drill, and I saw that the threads were stripped. So I started to, I thought, okay, I'll just pluck that one out, put a new one in. Not knowing how hot that screw was, I picked it out with my hands, and it seared my finger and thumb like a piece of chicken in the frying pan. I could hear it. I could see the smoke. I could see the discoloration of my skin like the chicken in the frying pan. Uh, of course, I felt the pain. I could see it, and my son saw it. The weirdest thing happened. I say weird because it's unusual. It's what physicists call, use the word weird for, something that's out of the ordinary. And so uh, and normally I would burn, have a burn like that. I would run to the house to get first aid measures, some unguentine or ice or something. A little voice in my head just quickly said, no, it'll be all right. I totally believed it for some reason, more than I ever have before or since. And I totally believed it and went right back to work. I looked back at my fingers after about 15 or 20 minutes, and they were totally healed. I witnessed it, and my son healed it. I thought, the universe is trying to teach me that there is that total belief in this quantum world or in this spiritual world. Then it affects what we call matter, but it can change so quickly because it's only a destruction to something that's a tendency to exist. It's just in my worldview, I've not been able to believe that so fully the rest of the time in my life. Hopefully I can come to believe it more and more, and I have in certain ways about certain things, but I'm still locked into the world of the culture around me, for the most part. But I'm seeing glimpses of this other world. Henry, it's good you're testing me here. It's good. You're stretching me. Really? Yeah, you are. Meaning there's a... I'm stretching me too. (laughs) Yeah. I'm stretching me. What do you mean by that? Well, we're all locked into the system that we grew up with and the worldview that we're a part of. And we think that's, that's the true world. We think that's reality. But it may not be. Sort of like the, that thing in Magellan's diary, you know, when he was sailing around the tip of South America. And he stopped for water and supplies. And they anchored the boat, the galleon ship. They rowed into shore. The Indians saw them as they started to emerge. And they thought they were gods to drop from the sky. They could not even see the galleon ship because that was not a part of their consciousness and their perceptors to see anything there. Only after they had some talks with them and somehow through sign language managed to get them on the little boat to row them out toward the galleon ship, only as they began to approach it, got closer and closer, could they finally see in a filmy way and then finally more clearly that there was a ship with all these big masts and sails and everything there. 
They didn't have the receptors even to see that. That, to me, is a wonderful example about what's true for all of us. There are plenty of dimensions of reality around us we're not even aware of. And we try to make what we see around us real. That's like the farce of all this whole thing on television now, all these reality shows. No, it's not what reality is, it's what we've made up. It's what we've made up that we call reality. But remember John Wheeler, physicist John Wheeler's words, could it be we bring the whole world and whole universe into existence through our consciousness, he says. I think part of what the stretch is for me is that when we get into the territory of something that we could call miracle healing, I think of all of the people who have had physical challenges and who have wanted so much for there to be a healing. They've brought mm-hmm. all their intent, all of their openness and capacity to the situation, and it hasn't changed for them. They've remained ill. And so when I hear your story about the fingers burning and, and your belief, I think, how do we understand all of the people who aren't healing? I, I think that's a wonderful question, Tammy. It's one that inspired the book I've just finished writing, actually. What I discovered, I was doing a seminar in Boston uh, a couple of years ago, maybe three years ago, and uh, I had the inspiration to uh, start it off by saying, how many people here want to have a totally happy and healthy life? Of course, everybody's hand went up. Um, and, of course, my asking this question was inspired by my, what I experienced clinically and with myself in other dimensions. But I thought I'd ask this larger audience. Everybody's hand went up. And I said, with your permission, I'd like to come around and do this muscle testing on everybody very quickly and to see if you believe you deserve to have a totally healthy and happy life or if it's safe for you to have a totally healthy and happy life. I thought maybe 25 or 30% would have some of those. The results blew my mind, literally. Everybody agreed to participate in it. And in this workshop, there were probably uh, 75 people who were there. And I quickly went around and did this. 82% of the people had both those barriers as beliefs. They don't deserve, and it's not safe to have a totally healthy and happy life. The other 18% had one or the other. And these are only two of many barriers we could have. I thought, well, let's check this out further. Is it just New Englanders? I was doing a seminar in New York a few weeks later, got the same results. Raleigh, North Carolina, same results. Chicago, the same results. San Francisco, Austin, Texas, all across the country, I got the same results, almost identical, just a point or two off. And these were only two, as I say, of many different barriers that could be beliefs or traumas or worldviews or whatever, secondary gains, whatever it might be. And most of those are not conscious to us. And all these people in all these audiences were mostly people who'd done a lot of work in different kind of self-reflection, spiritually or psychologically, and still were not conscious of it. Now, we can't blame ourselves for it because that's what the ego mind always wants us to do, to blame ourselves for making ourselves sick or whatever. No, we can't blame ourselves. We've just had those downloads. We had those conclusions from childhood. It's part of the human condition that we carry that. And unless all of those, you can't sail a boat if we've got anchors holding it back. And maybe their anchor's not visible to us. We've taken sailing lessons. We've learned how to hoist the sails, how to get, set the rudder, how to set the sail. Wind is there, but the boat's not moving. We've not been taught how to look for all those anchors that might be hidden holding the boat back. And I think the same thing is true for us. 
that when we don't get those results we want, there are other hidden anchors. If 90 to 95% of all of our behaviors are not conscious, it's very likely that we have a bunch there that are just not conscious to us. And our goal is to, one reason I like the muscle testing, it helps us access that quite quickly as to what they are and where they are, what it would take to cut loose those anchors. So I think that is a role that keeps a lot of things from working. And then the other thing is that sometimes we just have a need to, or for some reason, whether it's conscious or unconscious, but we have some strong games for keeping it or having the sickness, and we've not dealt with them otherwise. And if we've not dealt with it, whether it's in a relationship or whether it's in a body or whatever it is, we're not ready to let it go. And so we have to be, be ready to do that. And that's why I like these other methods, too, because it helps open up that dimension. As I say, that's whether you want to have a healthy, happy relationship, whether you want to have a healthy and happy body or healthy and happy mind or constructive in business and success there or in money or whatever it might be. The same thing applies. You're saying that these other methods help open up the 99% of what's running our system that's in our unconscious? Yes, it helps us access that. And it helps us use some of these tools to actually uh, change that software, that encoding of information. Okay, now I have to ask you a question, Henry, which is, is there any evidence that muscle testing is an accurate tool for assessing a situation? Uh, well, when you say accurate, uh, I guess the... Uh, the most research was done probably by David Hawkins, uh, MD and PhD, who was a close associate of Linus Pauling. And he uh, talks about that primarily in his book, Power Versus Force. And he's had done hundreds of thousands of experiments around the world with it and found it to be pretty consistent. Uh, I found that to be true in my clinical practice. I've not tabulated it, but I consistently find that if a person, oh, uh, know that trauma I had back when I was age six, I talked about that in therapy for five years, I'm, I'm sure that's all gone. But they've been telling me how the things in their lives are not working that seem connected to it. But they think it's all gone because they talked about it. I'll do the muscle testing, and I'll find the strength of that disturbance is still an eight, nine, or a ten. And then I'll do the clearing, so I just talked about, or like, I, like one of the ones I did on myself that I spoke of a moment ago. I'll do that with them, and we bring it down to a zero. Then they'll come back reporting to me the big change in their lives, that they're not having that same kind of problem being manifested in their lives once that is cleared. So I find that is a clinical corroboration you know, for it. What I have found is when people try to use it, and that they have some ulterior motive in using it, uh, it doesn't work. That's why I find that self-testing doesn't work very much, or to test your teenage kid. Did you go to John's house like you said you would? Or you at somebody else's house last night? Because we have an ulterior motive. The ego wish or the fear invades. But I find if I have the purity of consciousness, which is what I teach other therapists when I'm training them in this, we need to have the purity of intent that I only want to know the, the, the deeper truth that would be of help to this person and their healing. I find when we commit ourselves to that, not trying to influence the outcome, not fearing an outcome, not wanting an outcome of some kind from my ego level, that's when I find uh, that it's most likely to be uh, quite a, uh, accurate. 
This conversation is really all about, I think, an emerging field that we could call energy psychology. Is that the accurate term? That's, uh, that's been a label applied to it. Uh-huh. And could you define that field just to help me understand it? Well, the, the field of energy psychology is just one that recognizes that everything is comprised of subtle energies and that consciousness plays a role in it. And so the field of energy psychology recognizes both the dealing with the energy meridians we're talking about, dealing with the field of energy that surrounds the body, uh, uh, dealing with uh, uh, the non-local mind that has been called in physics, that our mind's not contained in the brain and the skull, but reaches out to affect countless others around us because it's all part of the one mind, as physicist Erwin Schrodinger put it. And so whether it's the subtle energies of the uh, the an Eastern tradition of energy, uh, uh, not just meridians, but also the, the chakras. And so the broad field of energy psychology has people that work with various ones of these dimensions or all of them, or just how consciousness seems to affect it mm-hmm. without using any specific focus on any of those. So that would be the broader field of energy psychology, I would say. Thank you. That's helpful. Now, I want to circle back to how we began our conversation, which is what we can understand from physics that might help us in our relationships, and specifically in the audio series that you've created, The New Physics of Love. You talk about how we can work with our thoughts in relationships and how powerful this is in terms of changing what's going on in our relationships. And I wonder if you can share that view with us. Well, that fits right within what we've been talking about in this new world view, because, as I just mentioned before, the concept in physics of the non-local mind applies here. And it works in a couple of different ways. One is, if I think a thought, it instantly affects all the cells in my body. It affects my mood and everything else. It also governs my perceptions, how I interpret and see somebody else and what they're doing, what meaning I give to it. So whatever I think about, uh, I think of it as always creating a reality for us. I think there's no such thing as, a, as a, uh, an innocuous thought. Uh, I think there's no such thing as a private thought. I think all of our thoughts are always having an effect on our bodies and our moods and our perceptions and on people around us. From a non-local mind standpoint, uh, what happens here is if I'm thinking a thought, we have a lot of research now that shows, yes, it can affect people countless distances away. Uh, uh, astronaut uh, Edgar Mitchell did an experiment on this when he was out in a spaceship after he'd gone to the moon and sending messages telepathy, we'll call it, to a woman in Australia. And it was higher than a chance element um, that uh, by far, you know, the communication, the accuracy of it. Uh, So what that tells us is the same thing that many spiritual systems will tell us, that our thoughts are having an effect, or one like one system called A Course in Miracles says every thought is affecting, we change our minds. I'm affecting countless numbers of people around me every time I change my own mind about something. So if I'm thinking angry, resentful thoughts, hurt thoughts, deprived thoughts, uh, rejection thoughts, one is I'm going to instantly make myself feel bad. I'm going to make all my cells unhappy. But also, I'm going to send out a message to the world to attract more of that very thing I'm thinking about, more of the rejection, more of the withholding of love, 
uh, more of the mistreatment or whatever it might be. But if I change my thoughts, then I'm going to send forth an entirely different message. First of all, to myself and my body. I'm going to affect the body chemistry that I have and keep myself in a happy mode and stabilized rather than being depressed or anxious. But also I'm going to send forth a different electromagnetic invitation out to the world around me and the people around me to respond differently. I have seen so many people, uh, say people, I gave several examples, I think, on this audio series, who uh, single-handedly transform their marriages just by changing their own thoughts. That uh, one I think I gave there was one man who uh, came to me because he said he was just so miserable and he needed help because he lived, what he, what he said, with the world's biggest shrew. And I thought, well, I've heard everything. I'm not sure what that is, but ask him to tell me more. And he described how he'd be anxious. from After, after lunch at work, he worked in uh, lower Manhattan in the Wall Street area and lived in the Upper West Side. And he says, after lunch, when I start thinking about going home, I start almost having panic and dread of what's going to happen when I get home to my wife. And, uh, and I said, well, tell me more. What happens? And I said, well, sometimes uh, I walk in the door and she'll just start screaming at me. Other times she's run up and grabbed me and, and spit in my face. Other times she's thrown a cup of coffee in my face across the table. Uh, other times she's pounded on me with her fists. And he says, I just live in dread not knowing what it's going to be. And I suggested to him that, uh, ask him if he was willing to do an experiment. And he says, I don't know what it is, Doc, but I'm desperate, so tell me. And I said, would you just uh, think about some time when you've had a, uh, uh, a memory of a good experience with her? And he said, thought for a minute, was silent for a bit. And finally he said, I can only come up with two or three members, and they were way back in the beginning of our relationship, 16 years ago. And, uh, and I said, well, that's enough. I said, when you start having those uh, anxious thoughts about going home, Take several deep breaths to relax yourself and just start focusing on the memory of those nice, loving uh, experiences you had with her, even though they were years ago. And just do that. Then the fear thought comes in again. Take another deep breath. Focus on those memories of those good experiences and take a few more deep breaths as you do it and then go about your work. He said, it's the silliest thing I've ever heard of, but because I'm desperate, I'll do it. Well, he did it, and he came back the next week saying uh, he couldn't attribute it to what he was doing at first. He says, I don't know what happened. I think my wife might have had a mild case of the flu going around or something because she's not behaving as much the way she used to be. I think she must be sick, a little under the weather. I'll let him stay with that. And he came back the next time, and uh, he was clear that she wasn't sick, but he began to say again, you know, I don't know what's going on. It's not the strength of that. He's just still doing some of it, but it's way down, half, less than half of what it used to be. He said, could it be what this exercise I'm doing? And with that, it said, well, I think it probably could be. He says, can I keep doing it? And I said, let's do it and see what happens. So I approached it as an experiment. Within several weeks, he felt like it had totally transformed his relationship. He said, no, occasionally she still has these, but I can live with that. You know, it's maybe 3 or 4 5% of the time. But the other change is so dramatic. He says, I can live with that, okay. I can still be happy with that. 
And the only thing that had changed, at one point he said, I wonder if she went to see another therapist and didn't tell me. Then he found out that she hadn't because no checks had been written to a therapist and weren't charged to a credit card. And so he had to finally come to see it was his thoughts that did that. There's a wonderful line from this same psycho-spiritual work I quoted before that says, my thoughts alone cause my pain. But it then adds a caveat, but I can elect to change any of the thoughts that hurt me. And that fits so much with the Buddhist teachings, or Jesus of Nazareth teaching, or other of the great masters throughout the centuries, or even cognitive therapy today. All of these are saying the same truth, that our thoughts are immensely powerful. In the process of shifting our thoughts, holding these positive thoughts of our partner, is there a way that we can just be doing this on the surface? I mean, how do we make sure that we're really getting to the, the roots of whatever's going on? A very good question, Tammy, because sometimes people have great difficulty monitoring the thoughts this way. And I find when that's true, it's because they have a lot of traumas that are uncleared and a lot of negative beliefs that are not cleared, that are supporting it. It's much like trying to uh, put the brakes on a train going 70 miles an hour, while at the same time you've got four diesel engines behind pushing as hard as they can. And so sometimes in order to monitor our thoughts, we may have to do this earlier work of clearing our traumas, our painful experiences, our earlier downloads, and our negative beliefs. Then we can have more success with our thought monitoring. Other times we may even have to retrain our brain if our limbic system is overactive and is constantly pouring out stress hormones of cortisol and adrenaline. So we may have to do some retraining of the brain to calm that part down enough that they can even begin to do this kind of thought monitoring. But then there are certain areas where we can do it without that. Of course, meditation is a practice of being able to do that because you observe your thoughts and you come back to your focal point, whether it's a breath or a mantra or a word or a candle flame or whatever it might be. That's a way of retraining the brain. Uh, so there are many ways that we can, we can do that. But, uh, yeah, it is sometimes difficult, and sometimes it's hard to stay with it. But we need to go back upstream to take care of the problems or the anchors holding us back that would keep us from doing it. Because ultimately, the only way we can ever find real happiness is to be in charge of our thoughts. I think of a wonderful phrase from Paramahansa Yogananda in his book, Autobiography of a Yogi. He says, I never allow any thought to linger in my mind without my express permission. And I thought, wow, that's what I aspire to. Mm -hmm. I would love to have that much control of my thoughts. So for my own personal growth, it's been using all these tools to help support my being able to do that more. And I make more progress with it every year. And I expect to make more progress next year because all these tools help support that. Now, of course, it's one thing to not let a thought linger, but we can't really control what thoughts appear in our mind, can we? That's true. Uh, we can preempt some of them if we clear, have cleared the traumas that are act, being reactivated over and over again. Yes, uh, having done that would mean that they won't appear and they won't pop up quite so often. But the ego mind will always be here in all of us as long as we're here in a human body. That's what being human is. The body is the symbol of separation. The ego is the symbol of separation. It'll always be jumping in with some kind of negative thought. But the key part is like Yogananda said, you know, do I want to give express permission to it to stay? And then we have to deal with 
as much as that consciously all of our lives, but if there are some anchors holding back some of it, we just need to use those tools more to make it more and more possible. Henry, there are so many things that I could talk with you about, so many ideas that you talk about in the new Physics of Love, but here at the end of our conversation on Insights at the Edge, here's the thing I'm really curious about. You've now developed and worked with so many different techniques, as you say, in the twinkle of an eye, things can shift. And I'm curious, in your own life, our program's called Insights at the Edge, and I always love to know the edge that people are working on. In your own life, are there things that just seem kind of stuck for you, that don't seem to respond to these energy psychology techniques that seem just sort of stuck in the mud, or is it not really working that way for you these days? I'm finding that they have worked for me immensely. Uh, but it's not just the energy psychology techniques. It's, I've been practicing meditation twice a day for at least 25 years. I've been studying a lot of spiritual disciplines for at least as long. I was strongly influenced by physicist David Bohm years ago. It was a transformative time for me. Uh, the most influential teacher in my life was in graduate school, having Viktor Frankl with me to understand the power of our thoughts, like even in the concentration camp. So I've been working on this stuff for many, many years. And so it's, it's a mixture of the spiritual, the psychological, the energy work, uh, the consciousness, all of that together that I use repeatedly all the time in my life. And it doesn't mean that I don't have things pop up that disturb me. But what it does mean, I deal with it much more quickly. I'll go meditate. I'll go do an energy process on myself. I'll do some breath work. I'll surrender something to my higher consciousness, not a sky, sky god out there, but to a higher consciousness. And letting go of my masterminding from my ego level. Yeah, all these will still appear to me, but I deal with them so much more quickly now, far more quickly than I did five years ago, ten years ago, especially 20 years ago. And so I'm still in the process, and I expect I'll be using them the rest of my life. But I also expect that I'll need to, I can have more success more and more quickly is what I'm imagining from it. So whether it's an area of my own health, whether it's an area of relationships, whether it's the most intimate or whether it's with friendships or work relationships, whether it's to do with money, whether it's to do with my career, I find the more I just keep myself at peace and surrender the outcome and trust the flow, I find they just kind of work miraculously. Things just come from wherever, and I don't even know where they're coming from, but I just find it's just joyful to receive them. Wonderful. Thank you for speaking with us today on Insights at the Edge. I'm very grateful. Thank you. It's been wonderful to talk with you, Tammy. I've been talking with Dr. Henry Grayson. He has created a nine-hour audio course with Sounds True on the new physics of love. Soundstrue.com, many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.